Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. Hello, 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 and welcome, everyone. Welcome to the group chat, Radical Change. I am your host, Vonda Page, and today I am excited, I'm honored, um, and just so enthusiastic about talking to our guest today, Jackie Abram. Jackie co-wrote a book called Hush Money, um, and it is, it's just going to, I'm so full of the the content and the story of Hush Money. And so I'm excited to have Jackie talk about it today, and we're just going to get right into it. Um, First, I just want to say welcome and thank you for joining me. And how you doing this morning, Jackie? I am well. I am so excited to be on your show today. You know, thank you for having me and uh, amplifying my voice. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I had shared with the LinkedIn community that I just read Hush Money um, uh, this week. And it the, the story, first of all, um, I have to say again publicly thank you for putting this story pen to paper, you know, fingers to keyboard and getting it out here for the world to see. Because I think that for those of us who spend any time in any formal organization, a company, a school, you know, a nonprofit, um, any formal organization as black women specifically have dealt with probably at least 50% of the things that you just described in this one person's story. So before we even get into talking about that, just tell me a little bit about, you know, the origin of how you actually brought that story, you know, to, to life for us all. Okay. Um, well, thank you for that marvelous introduction, Vonda. And, um, you know, just to give you a little bit of background on me, um, I'll be honest with you and your audience that that writing a book was never something I ever considered. It was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, If you know a little bit about me, you probably know that, you know, my background is in finance. I'm a number cruncher. I am not a writer. Okay, Um, I had a a lucrative career in higher education that. Um, I was very, very good at it. And, and let me just put emphasis on that, Vonda. I was exceptional at my job, okay? I was good at it. Um, but it was also a job that I enjoyed. Um, it was a job that paid me uh, six figures, which, you know, as a, a single mother of two girls was essential because my income was the only income. And it it gave me what I needed to 
not only provide for my family, but to also pay my bills comfortably. It was a career that by any measure should have been a successful career, okay? But it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't, Vonda, is because as I was building my career, which spanned nearly two decades, so almost 20 years, I kept finding myself uh, becoming the repeated victim of, of racism in the workplace. And Vonda, not the kind, you know, that you see reflected in a lot of those uh, movies, books, and, and TV shows about, you know, racism from decades ago, you know, during a time where it was more overt and you could easily spot it. You could point at it and say, yes, mm -hmm. that is racism. You know, people walked around in white robes and hoods and you just knew you were dealing with racism. That That's not what we're dealing with in the workplace today. Today's racism, Vonda, modern day racism is not overt, it's covert, it's hidden, and it is, it's much, much harder to prove. And so in my situation, as I was building my career and, you know, working in environments that are, you know, horrific, just to say the least, I, I suffered a lot of racial trauma and, you know, people don't know a lot about racial trauma. Um, I have nothing against diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings because they're well-intentioned, but a lot of times, um, you know, they focus on a little bit of what's happening in the workplace, but what they don't capture is that when you're experiencing racism in the workplace, when you clock out and you leave for the day, that racism effect on you doesn't stay at work. You carry it with you. It becomes part of you. And so in my case, I suffered a lot of racial trauma. And let me just say that as my career was being repeatedly derailed, And I found myself repeatedly losing everything, Fonda, everything that I had built, because this, this is what it looks like, okay? Yeah. You, you get this great job. Things are wonderful in the beginning. You know, this job gives you everything you need to, to provide for your family. You are building your career because you're good at it. You are climbing that corporate ladder, right? And you feel like you are on your way to, to having something sustainable that you can actually build and possibly even retire from, you know, because a lot of white people get afforded that, you know, they, they have opportunities and careers that they can project 5, 10, 15, 20 years out and see themselves in that same career field, in that same job um, and, and building a retirement and a nest egg. For a lot of us, that's not the case. So yes, you may spend several years in an organization living through pure hell, but still earning a great income. But if you are targeted by someone in that organization 
who decides that because you are black, you do not deserve that position that you hold. And they pull the rug from under you, both you and that ladder you're on come crashing down, okay? Um, I liken it to I liken it to George Floyd, honestly. Let, let me just tell you why I say that. George Floyd was brutally murdered in his community by a racist police officer, Derek Chauvin, right? Yep. But here's here's the thing though, Vonda. When Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, he was the one who took his last breath, who killed him in his community. But he was not alone. He had help. Mm-mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. There were three other cops there. There was one who was keeping those who wanted to be allies, who wanted to help at bay. Yeah. Well, observing they're watching okay this guy is watching Derek kill George right but then there are two other police officers who are physically holding George down rendering him completely powerless and helpless in that situation so essentially they aided and abetted him while he killed George in his community right yes now The reason I bring this up is because racist police kill us in our communities. Every day. Derek Chauvin was the most influential, the most powerful, the most senior person on that scene. And so when he led, the rest of them followed. Now you take that situation and you move it to the workplace, okay? You are a black person, Bonda. You are working in your job. You are good at it. You have met all the check boxes on doing an exceptional job. <clears throat> but a white person who happens to be racist and in a senior position, they are a person of power and influence, okay? They notice you and decide to target you because you are black. Well, they may be the one carrying out the act of killing your career in the workplace, just like he killed George Floyd in his community, but they always have help. They always have help. They target you. And then because of their power and influence, they get others to conspire with them. And before you know it, you are finding yourself facing three impossible choices that no person should ever have to face. You know, you're going to suffer in silence to, to try and keep your job because you need that job. Um, It's providing for your family. Um, That never works. So you may consider resigning to keep your sanity. Um, In my case, um, I, I considered resigning because I was losing myself. I was suffering racial trauma that was so severe, Vonda, that I was considering both suicide and homicide because, you know, I actually wanted to kill my boss and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. If I could have found a way and, you know, I gave it a lot of thought. If I could have found a way to 
murder my boss and get away with it. I was so messed up in the head by what they were doing to me. I probably would have tried. And unfortunately, a lot of us find ourselves on that ledge, on that cliff, you know. That and so, cliff is real. It, it is real. And so in my case, um, the last time my career was was derailed, you know, um, it, it nearly destroyed me. And I, I was considering killing myself because, you know, you know, you know, you're messed up in the head when you're thinking about, when you think about the peace and the acceptance and the love you get in death because you can't get it in life because of who you are. And so, you know, I was spiraling. I was just spiraling downward because everything you build, you, you end up losing it. And, you know, you may get some money in savings. You may um, get this position and you can stay in it and you're, you're, you're building it. But then when you become targeted, which always happens for us, always, always, and, and your career is derailed, you lose it all. And so that little bit of savings that you were able to accumulate, you're now living off of that until you get your next opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people think that racism is a one-time thing for us. And it's not, you know, let's say you are a black person who can say, you know, I was discriminated against. I, I, I was a victim of racism and, and people actually believe you. Okay. You don't get a little card that says, Racist people leave me alone in my next job because I've already been through this. Because I've been there. They I've don't give there. us that. They, no. they don't give us a little badge, okay? So by the fourth or fifth time of having my own career derailed, um, I, I just really, I sunk so low and I, I just, I was falling. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I was sitting, I remember the, the very day I was actually standing on the edge of the ocean at a place called a Salt Creek Beach in California, just, you know, just ready to give up. But um, I think, I think that God intervened because as I was staring out at that ocean, just trying to, you know, figure out how I was going to do this. Um, I got a call from my, my baby. I have two girls. Um, my youngest daughter, Delilah called me and, uh, you know, I got the phone in my pocket and I pick it up and I said, Hey baby. And she started crying and she said, mom, they're after me. Uh, I'm about to lose my job. These people are treating me so bad and she just starts pouring her heart out to me as I'm sitting there standing on the sand staring out at the ocean now um I don't know if you're a mom but if there's anybody who's listening is a mom you know it's one thing it's one thing if you come after me but if you right. if you come after my children in any way shape or form you've got a problem on your hands And so when she called me and I heard the desperation in her voice and I knew that she was 
this close to being on the same cliff that I was sitting on. Um, I pulled myself together and I, I told my daughter I was coming home. So I came back to Colorado and I helped my daughter. And then I talked to my oldest daughter and I said, have you experienced anything like this? And when I asked her point blank, you know, cause she didn't tell me anything. She started crying and she said, mom, they're after me. You know, these people are, and she starts saying the same thing that my youngest daughter saying and that I'm feeling. And I said, well, you know, Deborah, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you tell me this was happening to you? And she said, you know, mom, you know, we're, we're supposed to be strong as black women. We're not, we're not supposed to be weak. We can't be weak. We're supposed to be strong. And, you know, and so she goes on saying, you know, she tried talking to a few of her friends. They told her it was in her head that she was just using the black card, you know, this and that and the other. And so she didn't want to worry me. And so when I realized both of my daughters were going through it, um, then I was like, okay, maybe I'm not crazy because at first I thought I was crazy too. And, um, you know, I, I did some interviews with um, other family members, um, talked to extended family, and then actually started interviewing people in our community and finding out that almost, I would say about 95% of the black people that I talked to, my story was their story. They were going through the exact same thing. But Vonda, in all those stories, there was a woman who was going through the same thing, okay? But she actually figured out the right way to fight back. And not only fight back, but survive the battle. Win the war against her employer and keep her job something that doesn't happen, okay? Because, you know, in a lot of cases, um, Vonda, if, if we are fortunate enough to prove what's happening to us and that company settles with us, as part of that settlement, you have to separate from them. They don't want to deal with you anymore. You can't keep your job. We'll, we'll buy your silence. We'll pay you to go away. And we're going to make you sign a nice little agreement that says you can't tell anybody what happened to you. You know, but we don't want to see you here anymore. We don't want you to stay here. You need to go somewhere else. Now, there's a problem with that, Londa. Okay. You may get that nice little settlement, okay? But eventually, you have to go back to work, okay? After you live off of that settlement and you try to heal from your racial trauma, you got to go back to work. And I don't care what that company says, you know, they may put it in your little agreement that says, you know, when you apply for a new job, we're going to give you a good reference. No, no. They can't explicitly tell that company that you're trying to get a job at not to hire you, but they can give little subtle hints and cues. And there's a trigger question that's always asked, and this is how they keep you from getting gainful employment, which is another form of that hidden racism that I'm talking about. You know, so you've gone over here to this new company. You're trying to get a job in the field that you um, are good at, that you love, that you enjoy. 
Well, especially if it's a six figure position or if it's any position, you know, that's, you know, let's say $20,000 or more in today's uh, day and age, everybody wants a professional reference. So they're going to call over here because this is the last job you had and they're going to probe, ask some questions. And the one question they always ask, okay, Rhonda, so you've said some, you've told us, you know, how long this person worked there. You've told us, you know, um, the job that they had, how much you paid them. But um, just one more question before we hang up, Rhonda. Would you hire this person again? And this person over here who can't stand you because you proved systemic racism, they're going to pause. They don't have to say a word. They just pause. That puts the radar up over here that something's wrong and now you can't get a job in your industry. So I know that was a little long-winded, but um, that's just my background and why I decided to come forward with my daughters and tell this woman's story. Because ideally, if we can help more of our people keep their jobs, you know, prove systemic racism in your workplace and keep your job, you know, that's going to be the best scenario for you. And that's what, that's why I wanted you here. That was not long winded. You took me through like what I went through reading the book in, in that, in, in that intro. And I mean, when people listen to this and watch it later and listen to the podcast version of it, I mean, they're going to jump to get the book. But one of the things, I mean, so much, but like, let's just talk about the, the trauma piece of it for a second. And, and like, I want to, I want to understand the healing part of getting the story out and telling the story. Cause one thing that I'm finding and I am a mom too, so I totally get it. And I can tell you every time my daughter calls me from California, like, boom, I'm on an airplane, right, from Oregon to get there. And yes. it's been like that. And I'm a single mom. I got divorced when my daughter was a baby. So, like, literally, you know, it's been me and her from the day she came out, <laughs> right? And so, so like, to your point, it's one thing when we're experiencing this traumatic abuse in a workplace because, like you're saying, your daughter was saying to you, I don't want to be weak because we we have been we, – we have been um, – Conditioned yeah. and conditioned to take any abuse, to yes. take any level of abuse in a workplace. We we're we're supposed to take mental, verbal assaults. We're supposed to take assaults to our character, assaults yes. to our looks, assaults yes. to things that we can't even change about ourselves, like the color of our skin or the texture. Like we're supposed to take it all and right. smile and be happy and be like, yeah, okay, and going out for happy hour and eating nasty potluck food and acting like everything is fine, right? Right. Um, within the midst of that. But to your point, right, what's happening in the background, it doesn't just stop at 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 3.30 yeah. when you get off. Whether you're working in a manufacturing spot or you're working in big tech or you're working in finance or education, that goes with you because even though you say, okay, I leave the door, right? right? And now it's basically, I have to walk away from the computer, but I walk out, I walk away. The impact of that doesn't change, right? It's just That's like, right. I burned myself on an iron when I was 14. You still can see this. 
That's right. right. It's still there. It don't hurt. Right. But it's still there. It's with me. Right. It's a physical scar. So when you think about those emotional scars that go to your your character or the essence of your intellect or who you are as a person being accused of lying, being accused of having bad integrity, when you know your performance is stellar, you looking right. at your coworker and you see this person playing on Facebook all damn day. Right. You in here busting out project after project. You doing this, you doing that. And at the end of the day, you get an average mark. They get whatever. And they right. bumping up and moving up. And you're trying to figure out what's wrong. I That's think right. one of the key things that you talked about that comes to light is you know the fact that everybody is in on it right so when you think about like i think about you know dave Chappelle or wu-tang clan or any artist or any black person right who's been out doing their art and doing their 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 craft for years when you get to a point and you start to recognize why is it that um, things aren't, why am I not moving up that trajectory? I'm doing all the right things, but what is happening? And then you, you know, like, like in the book, right? Ebony's talking to different people trying to understand. She's documenting, she knows she's doing all her stuff and trying to figure out what's wrong because it's not just one person. It's not just your boss or your boss's boss or somebody in an adjacent dotted line organization. It could be anybody with the power and influence that feels like, oh, Vonda doesn't deserve that job. Jackie doesn't well, deserve that job. Ebony doesn't deserve that job. Who she right. she is? Right. Well, and like I, don't I said, work for a black woman because yeah. you know I think I that she doesn't deserve it because whatever, right? Well, like I said, you know they kill us in our communities, but they also kill us in our careers, our workplace careers, and it's a different type of death. And so that's where hush money came from. Um, we wanted to expose that. We wanted to, um, we really had three goals in mind when we wrote Hush Money. Um, number one, we wanted to give our people a, a fighting chance, a way to fight back. So we wanted to lay it out. You know, when you read Hush Money, and I'm just going to show the book here. When you read Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job, you get to see something that um, you don't really get to see with a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings because, you know, those trainings, again, I have nothing against them. They're well-intentioned, but, you know, there's only so much that you can teach in an annual training or a semi-annual training. Um, You can only covers so much in a small snippet and there's so much more to the story. So with Hush Money, you get to see the five-year journey of one Black woman. You get to see from the time she is uh, reading the newspaper, looking for a job. job. Mm -hmm. You get to see it all the way through, all the mistakes she makes, the racial trauma she suffers. Everything that happens to her, the consequences for speaking up, um, yep. but then you get to see what she did to get it right after making a million mistakes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can learn yeah. from that and then take that back to your respective job and then implement these strategies that she implemented to turn the tables 
on your employer and keep your job. And Wanda, you know, you talk about racial trauma. That is a huge component that unfortunately is missing in a lot of the corporate trainings. And so what I would like to do um, just for a couple of minutes, if I want to read a tiny bit from Hush Money. Um, You know, I haven't done readings in a while. I did one reading yesterday. um, And, uh, you know, that was the first reading I had done in a really long time. But I I enjoy just sharing a little bit, especially we have a a huge audience here. Um, So I just want to talk a little bit about the racial trauma and uh, help you see what um, Ebony went through. So at this point in Ebony's journey, you know, she's working for a a for-profit college. You know, she got this job from a temp agency. She was so good at this job that the chancellor, which is in the highest position at the college, bought out her contract and hired her full-time. So now she's got a full-time job, you know, that pays her uh, $40,000 a year. You know, she's really good at this job. She's excited about this job. But then, unfortunately, life happens And this boss that she started out with that, uh, you know, he was a wonderful white man who took her under his wing. He valued and respected her skills um, and and really treated her, you know, much like the, the father figure she never had. But he unexpectedly left the company and now she's got a new boss. And this new boss is absolutely horrific, to say the least. Um, The new boss starts the bullying trend, but the the new boss is smart. And I'm assuming that she's already gone through maybe um, being called out for racism before, because when she starts attacking Ebony, she does it in a way that Ebony can't easily pinpoint that it's racism. So just to give you an example, um, you know, instead of calling her Ebony, she calls her agony. You know, that was the first step in dehumanizing uh, Ebony by giving her this nickname that not only she used, but other people used to dehumanize her. And, you know, again, if you were to take that on face value, you can't clearly say, you know, this is racism. So, you know, Ebony's struggling with trying to figure out, you know, this woman's trying to break me. Like I'm a wild horse she wants to tame. But I can't clearly, you know, I'm looking at the EEOC guidelines and none of this is fitting in these boxes. So, you know, maybe it's not, maybe it's not racism. So eventually she gets demoted by this chancellor and thrown into another department, um, takes a salary cut, and now she's in the student finance office of this college. And this is where she encounters her uh, boss, Malcolm, where she can clearly say beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know, this guy is is discriminating against me and the other Black employee in this department at LaToya. And Ebony being the type of person she is, she wants to make things better for her and LaToya. So she tries to talk to him. That doesn't work. Uh, He blows her off. She tries filing an anonymous discrimination complaint. And not only uh, do things not improve after she files this anonymous complaint, they actually get worse. So I want to just read you a little bit about what happened after she followed the company's policy, okay? A lot of our employers say, you know, hey, if you're discrimin- uh, being discriminated against and you 
don't want to come forward, use our confidential hotline, you know, our anonymous hotline, and we got you, okay? Yeah, so Ebony realized after she followed their policy and did that, that it was absolutely the wrong thing to do, and there were severe consequences. So that's where I'm going to pick up the story, okay? Okay. Now, hindsight is 2020, and looking back, reporting discrimination anonymously was absolutely the wrong thing to do because corporate didn't conduct the investigation themselves like the policy said they would. Instead, they notified Ms. Kelly that an anonymous discrimination complaint was received and instructed her to investigate it. And since it was more important to her to find out who the rat was than to actually conduct an investigation, she used the process of elimination to flush out the guilty party. She started with LaToya. My heart raced as I watched Miss Kelly go into LaToya's office and walk away with her in tow. About 25 minutes later, LaToya walked back to her office with Miss Kelly following close behind her. And when her teary eyes met mine as I intensely watched from my office, she mouthed the words, I'm sorry. When I read her lips, my heart sank into my stomach and I felt violently ill. Then Miss Kelly went into Malcolm's office and closed the door behind her. For the next 20 minutes, I sat in my office on the verge of vomiting and wishing I was a fly on the wall in Malcolm's office. When Miss Kelly finally came out, she made her way to my desk. And if looks could kill, I would have been dead in my chair. Ebony, a word, she said with a low growl as she turned and walked away. I slowly stood up and began following her. And as I walked, there was no doubt in my mind. I was in deep, deep trouble. When we arrived at Miss Kelly's office and walked in, she closed the door behind us and tore into me like a rabid dog before I even had a chance to sit down. After everything I've done for you, after everything I gave you, you air our dirty laundry to corporate. I made you a celebrity. I gave you a career and this is how you repay me. I, I'm so sorry, Miss Kelly. You are sorry. You're the sorriest excuse for an employee I've ever seen. And you've committed career suicide. So think about that and get out of my office. Tears flowed freely from my eyes as I left her office and began the long walk of shame back to mine. And as I got closer to the student finance department, I saw Malcolm standing in the entryway and grinning at me like an evil clown. I was emotionally exhausted after the verbal beating I took from Miss Kelly, so I scurried past him, went into my office and closed the door, and breathed a sigh of relief because I still had my job and hoped everything would blow over and return to normal in a few days. When I arrived at work the next day, I realized that everything was not going to blow over and return to normal anytime soon. Malcolm was furious when Miss Kelly informed him that I made the anonymous phone call to corporate, so he retaliated against me. He reviewed my completed work and riddled it with errors, making it appear that I was incompetent and putting my job at risk, verbally abused me in front of coworkers, called me darky in private behind closed doors, and made me work more late shifts than anyone else. And since he knew my sister was now a student at Daybrun, he tampered with her financial aid, which caused a delay in the additional student loan funds she had borrowed to help mom catch up on her car payments, which delayed the stipend check she was supposed to receive and resulted in mom's car being repossessed. 
Things were so bad with Malcolm that I dreaded coming to work, afraid of the new attacks each day would bring. My job became a living nightmare from which I could not awake, gave me an enormous amount of anxiety, and resulted in 40 pounds of weight gain over the next three months due to stress. One afternoon, Malcolm stopped by my office unexpectedly and closed the door. My, how the mighty have fallen, he said with a lighthearted chuckle. The posters of you were pulled down a few minutes ago, and your face is being removed from all marketing material as we speak. So guess what? No more celebrity ebony. Then he shrugged his shoulders and cheerfully said, oh, well, ready to quit yet, Darkie? I, I didn't say a word. I just stared at my computer screen and feverishly typed while he stood in front of my desk glaring at me in a way that gave me the creeps. He glared at me for about a minute and then out of nowhere busted out laughing. He laughed so hard he almost choked on his own spit. As he stood in front of my desk pointing at me and laughing, I wanted to cry, but managed to hold the tears back long enough for him to get the hell out of my office. Then I cried. I felt so alone and there was no one I could turn to for help because Miss Kelly retaliated against me too. She spread vicious rumors about me across the campus and labeled me mockingly as the girl who cried racism. And because she was the chancellor and her words carried a huge amount of weight, she transformed me from the racial discrimination victim that I was into a social outcast and no one, not even Latoya, wanted to talk to me, let alone be seen with me. And I didn't dare file another discrimination complaint. I was too afraid of being fired or making matters worse. As I sat at my desk crying, I knew it was just a matter of time before Malcolm unjustly fired me, or I buckled under the pressure of his hate and resigned. I also knew that no matter which method brought about the loss of my job, the end result would still be the same. Without my job, I would go spiraling back into poverty, and the thought terrified me. As I continued worrying about my job, my mind began to wander, and I started having dark thoughts, very dark thoughts, about Malcolm. And what I would do if I ever saw him alone in a dark alley with no cameras and no witnesses. I'd do my best to beat the living shit out of him, stab him a few times with a butcher knife, then force feed him my shit until he gagged and begged for mercy. And if he tried to crawl away as he bled, I'd pull out my gun and shoot him. Yeah, just shoot him. Or should I stab him again? Stab him or shoot him. Shoot him or stab him. Stab him or shoot him. And so you can see, you know, this this woman is is suffering, you know, She's on the verge of vomiting. She's violently ill. You know, those are signs of physical racial trauma and emotional racial trauma. She's having, you know, homicidal thoughts, you know, that psychological mental trauma. You know, these are all, these are all cries for help. And there's nobody to hear her cries and to help her. And so she's just sinking and unraveling. As she goes through this. And it's the same thing that is happening to black women all over everywhere at every type of job in every company. I don't care if it's, you know, Fortune One, Fortune Seven, Fortune 322, nonprofit, 
big schools, Ivy, non-state. This is happening to black women everywhere. This is happening. And well, so first of all, this. we're not crazy. We are no. not crazy. This is happening. And and thank goodness people are chronicling, you know, these experiences. Well, here, here's the thing, Vonda. You know, you bring up a valid point. Um, Hush Money tells a story about one woman's journey here in America, right? But interestingly enough, I get contacted every single day. I have about a thousand friend requests that I just can't get to on Facebook. But I, I get contacted every single day from people all across the globe, black and brown people, not just black people, you know, indigenous people, you know, Hispanics. I mean, just people, black and brown people. They're contacting me. Um, I have people from New Zealand, from Ireland, from Australia, you know, from Uganda, from Egypt, Nigeria, United Kingdom. They're all contacting me and they're telling me we're experiencing the same thing here. You know, um, in fact, a guy that I talked to yesterday from Canada said what we're experiencing here in America, they've got it worse in Canada. And so, you know, and, and so what's happening is hush money is actually spreading across the globe in ways that I never thought was humanly possible. And, and here's why, you know, um, I told you my story and I told you about my daughters, Deborah and Delilah, who are co-authors on this book. Yeah. You know, um, my background was in finance. Neither one of them has a writer's background or an author's background, you know, but we produced a book, you know, we, we took the story, we poured our hearts and souls yes. into it yes. and we added depth to it through our experiences and the experiences of so many others. But be clear about this. This is not a compilation of multiple stories all spliced together nicely to give you a dramatic book. This is one woman's story. This is what happened to one woman. So we wrote this book. You know, we didn't know what to do with it. Um, We wanted to help others with it. Uh, We self-published because we we didn't have a publisher. somebody's not happy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so here's a funny thing. We, we tried to get a publisher initially, but publishers didn't think nobody wants to hear about this. Nobody wants to read this story. Nobody will. No, 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 no. So we were like, okay, no worries. Um, if a publisher won't take us on, we will self-publish. So we uploaded the book to Amazon. I found a a graphic designer for $22 who designed the cover. And then once we uploaded it to Amazon, you know, there were no upfront costs other than the the $22 I paid to have this book cover created. And then um, we took that book that Amazon said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll print this book for you. We'll sell it for you. We'll keep a portion of the royalties. And so then they gave us our author's copies and we put them in the trunk of my car and we started selling the book from the trunk of my car five months ago. Five months ago, Vonda, we were selling this book at Parks. We were selling this book at, you know, pop-up shop events, you know, anywhere we could find an audience who was hurting. Um, Either you're going through racial discrimination or you're somebody who's never experienced it. 
but you want to help, but you don't understand it because you've never gone through it. So hush money puts those people, the allies who want to help, but they don't know enough about what we go through because they've never experienced it. It puts them into Ebony's shoes. And when they see her five-year journey, when they come out of that, they are changed. Their ideas and their perceptions about what we experience working while Black are changed. And and so that's what makes this such a rewarding experience for me is that we're changing lives and opening eyes all across the world. Um, you know, Vonda, I told you I started selling this book five months ago from the trunk of my car, right? Paid $22 for the graphic cover, graphic design cover. Today, you know, today, Hush Money is an international award-winning book. It is the recipient of the reader's favorite gold medal on social issues novels. It's on Amazon's bestsellers list. It is um, number one on so many categories on Goodreads, uh, like, you know, best eye-opening African-American women's fiction Mm -hmm. and number one in best books to read to improve and increase your social uh, justice awareness on racism. And, you know, number one on best black uh, female protagonists. Um, And then, you know, it's number nine on findthisbest.com out of thousands of books for best African-American Christian fiction, you know, and like I said, it's spreading around the world. So to those publishers who said, you know, this book was not something that people wanted to hear about. Nobody wants to hear about our experiences with racism in the workplace. Shame on you. Shame, Shame on, you. on them. Yes. Shame on them. And the thing is, right, our experiences are valid. Um, and the thing is, I mean, I, it makes sense to me why I could hear a publisher saying that because they, no, they don't want to be confronted with the horrors of it. And and reading Ebony's story, right? It yeah, th- it's one story. But to even imagine that you're treating a person like that, to even imagine there are people in your workplace that are experiencing that, that are going home crying, vomiting. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I could just tell you from my experiences having severe migraines for years. But here's years another thing, Vonda. And other, and other things. Mm-hmm. But, but here's another thing, though. You know, let's talk a little bit about those same publishers, okay? You know, a Black woman comes forward with a book that says, let me show you what working while Black is like, what we're encountering, what the racism Black people are encountering looks and feels like in a real and authentic way. And these publishers say, no, you know, I don't think there's an audience for that. But let a white woman write the help, okay? Let a white woman write the help. And you have publishers, I mean, flocking to her, you know, trying to amplify her voice to tell our black experiences from her That's white right. point of view. Okay. I'm just going to put that out there because yes. you know, that's one thing that you get from me is straight talk, no chaser. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because that's what I'm about. Right. Yes. And you are exactly right. And, and even to the point of like, you know, I have, I have uh, friends who are writing books and have written books and, 
you know, their publishers want them to water everything down to your exact, to your exact point. But I think this is a lesson in, you know, you have something to say, you know, what you are bringing to the world, bring it to the market, bring it to the community is going to benefit the community. Do it anyway, do it anyway. Stop waiting for permission. So one of the things that I've been doing in, you know, when I'm talking to people is really trying to help people, Jackie, change the the story that's in their own head, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of us continually to take the story that somebody is telling us that your experiences aren't valid, nobody wants to hear it, it's not this, it's not that, tell yourself the story, right? So, So if I use myself as an example, I am a change leadership expert. I have been doing that work since I was in 10th grade, since my very first job. I've been in technology since 1984, but I can have, you know, all kinds of people tell me, well, you're not really this and you're not that. And you didn't, you don't have an engineering degree and you don't have, I can let people tell me, right, whatever they want and I can choose to accept it or not. And so not only do I think that, like not only is hush money, I, I saw it as a roadmap for when you enter a company and for different things. I saw it as a roadmap to number one, validate your own sanity and your own experiences. That when something is happening, it's not just you thinking it in your mind. It's really happening. But all of the structures and the systems and the collaborators are trying to make you think it's you. Right. So they saying little things. When I read the thing about um, them calling Ebony Agony. And then the whole thing about them calling them darky. You know what I remember? And this is the first time I think I ever will tell this story. So when I was, uh, I think I was, I might have been right out of college, but I was a manager at a Wendy's restaurant. And this Wendy's was in, you know how like fast food restaurants have uh, regions or whatever, like a, 10 stores in a group or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So this group of stores was undergoing, they needed people, somebody, a manager that could train people on how to use the computers and all this kind of stuff. But long story short, I had my uh, first car. My first car was a Honda. Do you know that the freaking people used to say, there's Black Vonda driving her Black Honda? Wow, that's awful. But that's just another way to dehumanize you. I mean, just ridiculous. Why would you need to say that? Ridiculous. Black Vonda driving a black Honda. Like like they thought it was cute, like it was a rhyme. And I remember I was like, what is the point of saying that? Like, Another way to dehumanize you. Exactly. And so when we hear and see these things, right, and I, and I, I immediately was like, don't call me black Vonda. My name is Vonda. You don't need to, like, you want me to call you white Susan, white Karen, white Brett, like it's stupid. Right. Right. Um, but when we're in those situations, like, you know, you got to take care of your family. You might be like Ebony trying to help her mom and, you know, help her sister with school. You don't have the luxury, right. Or the freedom to be like, take this job and shove it. right? Right. Because, because the next job, you don't even know when that next job is even coming, right? Well, and if you get the next job, you know, you were black over here at this job. You're still going to be black. You're still going to be black over here, okay? And and what do we say? It's better to deal with the devil you do know than the devil you don't know. So when we're dealing with the devil we do know, we know how to respond in that environment to maintain what we need to maintain right then and there. But when we go into a new environment, it might take what three weeks, three months, six months, how long to figure out 
where the devils are and who's on your side and who's the ones coming for you. So this roadmap is, to me, it's a roadmap in many, many ways. It's yes. not only a roadmap for like your own sanity and kind of navigating, you know, the the treacherous racial traumatic uh, terrain, right, yes. of, a, of any workplace, um, even education places that are PWI places, right? Um, right. But navigating that, but also when it happens, so one of the things that I love so much was the documentation and thinking about documentation in such a way that it's not hard. Because I can tell you for myself and other people over the years who, you know, try to chrono chronicle, chronicalize um, these experiences, it feels cumbersome because you're like, oh, I got to do this. But if you just make it like part of your everyday, whatever. Right. And, and I love how Ebony, you know, she just was like, okay, boom, 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 this happened. And then sending the email saying, okay, so you said this and that. Right. This, and then not, and them, whether they respond or not, you still sent it and you know, they got it. And all well, here's the thing nowadays have a seven year archive. So they got every email that was ever sent in the well, entire company, at least <laughs> for the last seven years. Well, here's the thing with Ebony though. And you know, I chuckle every time I think about this, um, you know, one thing that I can say about Ebony is that she was very smart. And so when she decided to take on a project, <clears throat> she looked at it strategically. She's like, okay, you know, and she lays it out strategically. So she says, okay, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to adopt the motto. The E in email stands for evidence. Evidence. Yes. I love that. Yes. Mm -hmm. E for evidence. Yes. yes. I've been e telling everybody that. E is evidence. Email That's evidence. Right. <laughs> That's right. And so what she did was she decided to weaponize email. And, you know, one of the things that Ebony picked up on, she's like, you know, if I think back to what Malcolm did to me, you know, because now she's in another horrific situation because she never got a break. It was back to back to back. There was always a new line of, of racists trying to take her down from her job. So she made it through the Malcolm situation. Um, mm -hmm. She actually proved uh, the racism that she was experiencing with him and he was terminated. You know, she's promoted. She's moved away from this campus to another campus on that college. And now because it's a new environment, new bosses, new people, you know, she's got a whole new crop of people to deal with. So at this point, you know, she says, okay, so I, I need to start collecting evidence. But one thing that Ebony noticed was that, you know, people love to give you verbal compliments, you know, hey, Ebony, great job on that presentation you gave, or, you know, hey, Bonda, you know, really like that report you wrote. They give you those verbal compliments, but, you know, they rarely put those things in writing. And so by in the writing. time it's performance review time, you, you're getting all these wonderful compliments and then you get your performance review and it's saying you're average or, you know, you're insufficient in some areas. And you're like, but wait a minute, all year you've been saying I'm doing a great job, but there's no proof, right? So what Ebony did is she's like, okay, I, I, I need to um, be strategic about this. So, you know, when you come walking down the hall, Vonda, and you say, hey, Ebony, great job on that presentation. Ebony stops in her tracks and she runs to her office and she sends you a thank you email subject. Yes. Thank you. 
Thank you, Vonda. It was so great seeing you in the hallway today. Thank you for saying what a great job I did on that presentation. I appreciate you. Boom. She sends the email, right? Why is that important? Because now you have tangible proof that at this point in time, you were doing an excellent job, okay? So when the racism starts and they try to paint you as a bad and competent employee, you now have a stack of thank you emails. They never respond back with anything bad. They either ignore it or they respond back and say, no problem, you know, it was my pleasure. Anywho, that is now piece of tangible evidence that you now have to prove that at this point in time, on this day, I was doing a great job. So when the racism starts or you give me this bad performance review and you try to paint me out as insufficient, I now have this tangible evidence. And if you wanted to try to counter that and say, well, I never said in the hallway that you were doing a great job on that presentation, then the onus and the liability is on you to respond to my thank you email and say that silence does not help you when it comes to um, building evidence that I can use against you. This is so good. So, you know, you're going to come back next week and we're going to talk some more. I think that we should talk about, you know, um, the ways that people can, where, where they are, like at whatever status they are, right? Whether they starting on a brand new job, a devil they don't know, <laughs> a devil they do know, or somewhere in between, maybe we talk a little bit, right, about, you know, how do you set yourself up for, for, for survival first, maybe, right, because of the racial trauma, and then maybe it's, you know, for success, right, so, so, I mean, this, I, I have a thousand just things going through my head about, you know, like I said, because I just read the book this week, right, and a thousand things going through my head, um, the the reading just brought so much back, and I know that when people listen to this later and and hear even just that part, they're going to be out getting the book. Um, is the easiest place for them to go right now? Just go to Amazon and type in Hush Money. Is that the so, easiest place for people to go? So let me just end on this. Let me let me just say a few things. Um, my book is called. Let me show it one more time. It's Hush Money. How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. This book is a great read for three types of readers. If you are uh, someone in our Black and Brown community who is currently experiencing racial discrimination at work, you are at your wit's ends. You don't know how to fight it. Look at the reviews on Amazon. As of today, we have 122 reviews with a five-star rating. And the theme across the Black and Brown community is consistent. They see this book as their survival guide. This is a roadmap, like Vonda said, to teach you. I mean, no matter where you are in your journey, whether you're at the beginning of your journey, whether you're midway through your journey, or whether you are on the verge of being wrongfully fired, this book can help you. Spend the, it's a $14.99 on Amazon. Invest that $14.99 in yourself and buy this book and start protecting yourself. So that's for the person going through racial discrimination. 
The other person this book is great for is our white allies. We have a lot of wonderful white people. I mean, I was able to get my voice amplified by Evan Burkhead, one of the greatest, Mm -hmm. most wonderful white people I have ever met in my entire life. I met him in an anti-racism Facebook group, and he saw value in me when no one else did. And he took a chance and he bought my book. And then my voice was amplified. So for people like Evan, who, you know, you want to help, you are an ally, you want to um, do what you can to help dismantle systemic racism, but you don't understand it because you've never experienced it yourself. Spend the $14.99. Invest in your knowledge, deepen your knowledge by stepping into the shoes of Ebony. When you come out of her shoes, your eyes will be opened. You will be forever changed and you will have a deeper understanding and, a, and, and have a, a better way to now help. And then lastly, and probably more importantly, are the people on this call who are employers, okay? You are managers, you are HR folks, you are DEI people uh, at your jobs. The reason those DEI trainings, like I said, as well-intentioned as they are, they've been around for decades, but they really aren't effective with stopping racism is because a lot of times they lack a strong racism component. They don't touch on every part of the racism we experience, including the racial trauma. So what I encourage you to do you know, you've got pockets, you've got pockets, employers, you can afford $14.99 for your management team. Give this book to your senior leaders and your management teams. Walk through the chapters. There are lessons for you as an employer to learn about the covert aspects of racism we are dealing with. And when we come back next week, I'm going to give you solid examples of what those covert um, aspects of racism looks like. I'll just give you a little nugget right here. A nugget of covert racism. You hire a white person and a black person, you give them the same job, right? Let's say it's director of student finance at a college. The white person gets an awesome training, Wanda. You give them the tools, the resources, and the information that they need to be successful in that job out of the gate. Same trainer trains the black person, but you withhold the resources, you withhold the tools, you withhold vital information, and you essentially set that black person to set up uh, set up for failure right out of the or gate. Failure. Yes. So while the white person is succeeding in that job, the black person is making mistakes and struggling because you've intentionally trained them wrong. And as they're making these mistakes, you're documenting it. And at the end of the probation period, you're using their mistakes that you set them up to make to fire them. That's just one example of the covert stuff we are dealing with. So employers, this is a book for your management teams and your leaders. If you need someone to facilitate the discussions with you, I am available. Um, Your teams will learn so much and you will be helping this woman who suffered my own racial trauma as my career was killed by racists and was so traumatized by what I went through that I wrote this book with my daughters 
and paid $22 to get a cover and sold it from the trunk of my car as my last effort at trying to survive in a world that is so unwelcoming for our people. Support me and I will just be forever grateful. And it's going to help not only with your healing, Jackie, but with a collective healing that we need, right, from racial trauma. So I just have to say thank you. Thank you so much. This was an invaluable conversation. But um, thank you so much, Jackie Abram. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next Saturday, same time. And we're going to get into those covert versus overt examples. And we're going to talk more about Hush Money and this roadmap. So thank you everyone for joining the group chat today. And just one more thing, get the book on Amazon. And if you want an autographed book, uh, DM me on LinkedIn because I have a lot of people getting autographed books. All righty then. That's even better. (laughs) I love that. Well, thank you so much, Jackie. And I will talk with you soon. Bye everybody.